Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, we will not progress very far again for uh, we find ourselves um, really taking care and time to understand this transition that Paul has entered into or that we have entered into uh, in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week we recognized that Paul is turning from doctrine to devotion, from this idea of indicative to imperative. And as I mentioned, there neither of the two in uh, Orthodox Christianity exists without the other. There is not true Christian orthodoxy without orthopraxy. For if the truth of God has been uh, planted in your heart fruitfully, it will produce the fruit of righteousness. It will produce that which it came from. We also were reminded last week that we're in the section of Paul's letter that I've titled as the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. Because we're going to see that the church's spiritual unity that he established in the doctrine portion is to have a visible reality. It's to have a visible manifestation in the church, that the church's spiritual unity is not just that. We don't just give attention to it, our words to it, empty words to it, but it is a real unity that, ha that is to be seen visibly in the church. And so there's an earthly reality to the exalted Christ. So in the latter three chapters of this epistle, Paul instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 to verse 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this section in Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, for it is rooted in the truth and knowledge that you have wrought a wonderful work of redemption in Christ. We thank you for the proclamation that our Savior, our Adam, has accomplished his covenant of work. And so by that, we are now invited into union with this second Adam to not just the temporal making new of our lives, but to the eternal hope of salvation. We ask you, Lord, that you would attend this preaching so that we may give you all the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at just one verse. 
within that verse, this therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We saw that there was this idea of orthopraxy. That this therefore was this turning point, this hinge upon which we move from right thinking to right living. And then we saw that as he implores and has this urgent plea that the Ephesians would walk, that this was an ordinary language, this was an ordinary way of travel, that we're not called um, to extraordinary lives, though the Lord will do extraordinary things through us, and though he may give us extraordinary desires, we find that there is ordinary. And we recognize that there is not... um, mediocrity in ordinary. But the ordinary is of great mystery, is of great comfort, and is of great encouragement to us. And we also saw that as we are being called according to a calling, or we're, we're, our calling according to which we've been called is an obligation. There's an obligation to this redemption that Christ has won for us. Not for us to complete the redemption, but for us to then in turn with new enlivened hearts and affections seek to honor our Savior. Honor to Lord who has done such a great work of salvation in us. Well, this morning this we see this continued as he says this walking in a manner worthy of the calling with you you have been called comes to us with all humility how is this going to take place how is this going to be lived out with all humility and gentleness with patience And then we're going to be showing tolerance for one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're going to see this unity in a a body context. Paul is putting it this way. He's going to speak about uh, Christ being the head and we are the body. And so if we're going to speak about this unity, we're going to, I'm going to use this metaphor that's already being used, this body metaphor. And so we're going to see that unity. We're going to see three things about unity. We're going to see its anatomy, its physiology, and its being. First, we must understand that this unity is a new creative work of God. It it is a part of the new creation. We exist this morning as believers in Christ in the overlapping of the ages, where we begin to partake, we begin to receive the benefits of that age to come, even now. That new creation that will descend from heaven as a new Jerusalem, where there will be no need for sun for the glory of the Lord will be its light this now in in as much as Christ has risen and ascended on high is offered to us to participate in as new creations so we understand that this unity is a new creative work of God. He calls uh, this unity the unity of the Spirit because men and women do not and cannot create it. So the unity we're going to talk about this morning is not one of uh, facade. 
we're not just united in one building in one place at one time. We're not just united in some concepts of how to do church and uh, what to believe. We're not even just united in what to believe and what we confess. We are you because those things we find all throughout creation. It is common to man to have clubs and orders and uh, lodges where men and sometimes women gather under common cause and a common roof, common belief. And there is a certain unity there. But the unity that Paul speaks of here at the beginning of Ephesians 4 is a unity of the Spirit. Because men and women do not and cannot create it. We see it because we find that in those places, though they labor together, though they, they strive together in their causes, because they do it in their own effort, because they do it not with a gospel mind, it is often ends in schism. It often ends in hurt feelings. And so that's why as we focus this morning on this unity of the Spirit, we must recognize and first humbly recognize that we cannot and we do not create it. For there will be times, even in us, as we all uh, still live from time to time according to that old dead nature, that there will be wrongs and offenses. There will be disunity among us. But we must recognize that if it, we are united in the Spirit, that that cannot be created within us. And so we would turn back to the source. And recognizing that this unity cannot be manufactured, we recognize that though it can't be manufactured, it must be maintained and not neglected. Christian unity is a spiritual given, but it is to be maintained. We are supposed to strive to maintain this real unity we have among us. We find here in these passages uh, the reality that the Word of God speaks to us oftentimes as we are, and especially as Paul addresses a church. He knows that there are still sinners there at that church, attending that church. And so the Spirit of God superintending tells them, now that there is something new about you, there's this new truth about you, this is how you are to live according to it. With the implication that you will tend not to live according to it. You will tend to live in strife and in self selfishness. You will tend to live according to pride and attending to, uh, uh, according to harshness, short-temperedness. And so our passage this morning addresses us right where we're at. But it does not do it. It does not lower the bar. Just like as we read in Peter, Peter says that we are to be holy as God is holy. 
that's not without the reality that we'll never attain that holiness. We're never to find ourselves ever saying, like, oh, I did it, I made it, and get our holiness patch. But it is to say that the reality is, is that we are to strive for holiness as God is holy. We are to strive, we are to maintain this unity as we are united in the Spirit. It's intended to be practical. How do we know that it's intended to be practical? Is it just because of this word, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 4? No, but that helps us point to an idea that we're, we're talking about things that are practical. But most of all, because this is what Christ had intended when he walked this earth. Turn with me to John chapter 17. We know this is Christ's high priestly prayer. We know he prays many things. We know much is unfolded here into the mystery of the Godhead. The mystery also of the two nature and one person, Christ. But I'm going to begin in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Speaking of the disciples and speaking of those who will believe in Christ upon their word. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that, you, that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. And will make it known, so that the love which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here, the Lord in his prayer is giving great practicality to the unity we have in the Spirit. What is the practical relationship of this unity? So that one, we would participate in this mystical reality, participate somehow in the glory of God. The older writers call this a deifying of us without heresy, without the stain of Mormon doctrine. The idea is, is that there is something foreign to us, worked in us. Not that we would become gods, but that we would become something that we are not already. That we are something that we are not by nature. This practical unity we see also works out externally to the world, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. How does the world know that God loves us? 
Because we love each other. Because we maintain our unity across all circumstantial differences that divides this world all over, and yet we are united. And we love each other. And so that the world may know that we are loved by God and how we love one another. And then that the world may know that the Father had sent the Son. How does our unity reveal that the Father has sent the Son? Well, we'll get to that near the end of our talk, our, our, the sermon this morning. But in short, it's because our unity is in Christ and His completed work. And so if we are to speak about the love we have for the brethren, we are, we are to uh, express this love to one another, to a watching world from time to time. And somebody may ask, hey, what's going on over there? Hopefully, we don't talk about uh, common things unifying us. But we talk about sacred things. We may say, well... We all have been given the love of Christ through His Spirit, and we like to show that to one another. It may not be the exact words to use, certainly no formulaic there, but I'm trying to, not trying to be formulaic, but it is something to be said that when people ask or people, we want to talk about our church, let us not merely land on common things. This union is a union of spiritual men and women, a holy unity springing from oneness with the Redeemer himself. Union with Christ is an indispensable preliminary, is preliminary to union with the Church of Christ. An individual must be joined to Christ before he can be a true member of the Church of Christ. And those individuals and those churches which are the most closely joined to Christ are the nearest to one another and will be the first to coalesce in the fulfillment of Christ prayer, may they all be one. This unity, we must see its origin not being in us, in our common things, but in heavenly things, in a, in a heavenly being. But this unity does have um, flesh, if you will. There is an anatomy to this unity. We see that in the first part of verse 2. With all humility and gentleness with patience. Humil humility, gentleness, and patience is the anatomy of our, of our union. It is, it is the, the way in which our union is expressed. Just like if we were to describe the human body, we would describe it in muscles and bones and organs and tissues. That's anatomy. <laughs> Constituting a unified body. Here we see that the anatomy of our union is hu humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility is the first principle of creatureliness. It's a recognition of being a dependent being. 
If you have not first alighted upon that, then you will never alight upon the need of a Savior, that, that a Savior would come, that there is a God who creates. The first principle of creatureliness is humility. A recognition that the Lord, being sovereign, determines our stations. This we see in the law. Remember how I said last week, we're not going to go and create a new moral law in the new covenant, a, a law of Christ that's somehow outside and different from the moral law of God that we see summarized in the Ten Commandments. So in humility, as a first principle of creatureliness, we see it in the first table of the law, being that we are dependent creatures, and so we are to give all honor, glory, and praise to the Creator. In the second table of the law, humility being that first principle of creatureliness will help us recognize that the Lord being sovereign determines our stations. So whether we are without and we'd rather have and so we take, we are to be humble and recognize God has not given us that. Same thing with coveting. Same thing with lying. Usually lying is an expression of something you don't have, and so you lie in order to receive something from that lie. And we see it very clearly in that fifth commandment, whereby through the principle of the fifth commandment, we see the establishment of our submission to authority, our subjection to authority, through authority structures that the Lord has ordained in our world. First, we see that humility would work well in us as we recognize that we are children and not parents. Kids, it would be well if you recognize that you were children and not parents. This will bless you temporally. We pray that the Lord would enliven a love of God in your heart so that you would do it to uh, the blessing of that. But on a bare way, we are to, humility will help us recognize that. Humility will help us recognize, wives, as we eventually get into chapter 5, that you are subject to your husbands. Men, oftentimes we find ourselves, certainly Scripture testifies that we are subject to the Lord, but we're also subject from time to time to supervisors and bosses, to those that sign our paychecks. We're to be subject to them. Humility will help us recognize that. It's a virtue of both tables of the law. And as it relates to the church, we may see that if we treat each other with humility, we are treating each other with deference. Humility, the, the humble are those who do not seek their own good, but selfish, selflessly seek the good of others. The humble are not self-promoting or self-advertising. The humble may be bold, courageous, and strong-minded, but they are always looking beyond themselves, esteeming other believers as better than themselves. This is part of the anatomy of our unity because it marked our Savior's incarnation. 
1 Peter 1 and verses 12 and 13 speaks about the prophets writing and prophesying of that which they didn't even look fully understand. And it says that they were prophesying about the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. The sufferings is Christ's humiliation. It marked our Savior's incarnation was His humiliation. And so because our, our Christ, our Savior, fully assumed that humiliation to its fullest, even to death upon the cross, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he says before that that it is ours in Christ. Why? Because we're united to Him. And so this humility is ours in Christ. Again, it's not from you that you're going to be humble. It's going to be from Christ. And yet, with all humility, we're to show tolerance for one another in love. With all humility, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How often does pride get in the way of our brotherly and sisterly kindnesses that we should be expressing to one another? What about this gentleness? Ian Hamilton says this word was used to describe strength under control, sometimes of a horse under the harness. It has nothing to do with weakness. Indeed, the opposite. The gentle are the strong who have found in union with Christ the grace of self-control. If the unity of the Spirit is to be maintained, gentleness is greatly needed. Believers are always tempted to assert themselves and not listen, to gener listen generously and humbly to the views of others. Gentleness is strength under control. So the opposite of gentleness is a cutting tongue, is a harsh word, is backbiting, gossip, slander. Gentleness is contrasted with unrestrained power and raw force. This kind of reactivity that manifests self-exertion. In both terms, the apostle signals a posture that is not self-exertive or domineering. It is clear that we see in the example of our Savior, one who was gentle. He said it himself, I am gentle and lowly of mind. Was he gentle when he overturned the money changers' tables? Was he gentle when he made a whip and chased them out of the Gentile courts? Was he gentle when he called the Pharisees dogs and, and other insults? Yes, he was. He was using the part of the rod to discipline those that should have been humbly submitting to his messiahship. 
So we do not think that Christ lived contrary to this idea of gentleness. And certainly we know of the prophecies in Isaiah where a bruised reed he does not break. And I think we all know that we are the bruised reed. We are the one in whom our Savior comes near to us in controlled strength to lift us out of the miry pit. Gentleness is much use to us. Paul counsels Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25 that he is to correct his opponents with gentleness in the hope that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Gentleness is much use to us as a body, much usefulness to us in maintaining the unity that we have in the Spirit. And those who adopt a gentle walk respond patiently. With all humility, gentleness, and patience, the opposite of patience, the opposite of long-suffering, is the refusal to practice the generosity of God toward fellow blood-bought believers. When you're done with somebody... And you've, you've reached the end of your generosity. You've reached the end of your giving to them. You are, especially as it relates to believers, you are in opposition to the unifying Spirit of God between you and that believer. The opposite of patience, or the, the reality of patience, is long-suffering. That's a wonderful, another translation of that word. Long-suffering. Ready to forgive. Ready to see also that which you contributed to this interaction. To confess that and then forgive that which has been done to you. Humility, gentleness, and patience. The anatomy of our union in the Spirit. Much more will be discussed more fully in the next few verses. But it demands... But the idea is that this unity demands maintenance. Because we here in Ephesians 4 have been urged and implored to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So we will come back to humility, gentleness, and patience time and time again. We will come back to understand that unity or that anatomy of this unity that we have. How does then this anatomy work? Physiology is how anatomy works. Not what it is, but how it works. There are two categories in which we find it here in verse 2 and 3. And it's in love 
and in peace. The physiology of our union, our unity, is love and peace. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. If love is not the moving force, the moving motive behind those things, you might as well have nothing. In the physiology of our union, our unity with one another, we are to see this worked out in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. There is a tolerance, there is a tolerating in our uh, common verbiage that does not include love. He annoys me, but I tolerate him. There's no love there. There's no motivating spirit to seek the best of that person. You're putting up with them. What kind of false unity would exist among those two people? Or at least from that one person to the other. You really have nothing. We are to show tolerance for one another in love. We recognize that this love is not uh, the love of the world, that the world defines for itself, for the love of the world in our day and age is a, is a def definitionist love. It's a truthless love. It's a lawless love. Love is defined by the person who's using the vocabulary. But in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love rejoices in the truth. It seeks righteousness. And so as we show tolerance for one another and love, we do so in a way that promotes truth and righteousness. We love self-sacrificially. We love for the sake of others, so we take up the calling of imitating God himself. For it was while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It was the love of God that would enter into this world apart from our request, apart from our desire. As a matter of fact, entering into this world in the rebellion of man, in the hatred of man, to redeem us. Love here as this first physiology of our unity is an enduring act. 
the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, beginning of verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Because one day faith will be seen. One day faith will be sight. And one day hope will be realized. But love will abide. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Love not to create unity. Love because we are unified. Peace. The physiology is in love and in peace. One commentator says, So not only bearing with one another in love, but also being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It marks out the manner by which one would be humble, gentle, and patient. Consider it, if we think about it in these bodily terms, the bond of peace is that which secures the anatomy to the bone. They're like the tendons. The bond of peace is, what, is what's going to hold it together. We find that this idea of peace is directly related to that which Christ came and preached to us. Paul has said earlier in his book that, or in, in this letter, that he might reconcile himself, reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Here our peace is the physiology of our unity because it is by this peace that we move, by which our humility moves and it's expressed in our gentleness and patience move. We know that Satan is constantly trying to stir up strife in the church. It means to be taken for the attainment of unity. That we would abandon a striving spirit. That we would renounce vainglory. That we would esteem others better than self. It is not enough for us to entertain peace. We must give diligent endeavor to compass and maintain it. Because the wisdom from above is peaceable. A contentious nature is bred within us and must be rooted out. The devil is always ready to sow discord. Unity 
is a comely thing. It's a, it's a homely thing. And a credit to religion. God takes to himself the title of the God of peace. So a peaceable disposition is an excellent means of concord. It's an excellent means of binding. It's an excellent mean, means of being bound together. Consider the words of Chrysostom. Bind not thine hands, but bind thy heart and mine. Bind thine, thyself and to thy brother. They bear all things lightly who are bound together by love. Bind thyself to him and him to, to thee. For to this end was the Spirit given, that he might unite those who are separated by race and diversity of habits, old and young, rich and poor, child, youth and man, male and female, and every soul become in a manner one, and more entirely so, so than if they were of one body. For this spiritual relation is far higher than natural relation, and the perfectedness of the union more entire, because the conjunction of the soul, being simple and accordant, is more perfect. And how is this unity preserved? In the bond of peace. It is not possible that unity should exist in enmity and discord. Paul would have us linked and tied one to another, not simply that we be at peace, not simply that we love one another, but that in all there should be but one soul, a glorious bond in this. With this bond, let us bind ourselves together alike to one another and to God. You see how this peace will work out? This is, this is a movement of humility, of gentleness, of patience. Now, as I've spent the majority of the time this morning expressing to you uh, things to be done, we call that law, and we confess that the moral law does sweetly comply with the gospel, and so it would be remiss not to address this bodily as to address it in anatomy and in physiology, but also in being. What actually gives it existence? We see later on in chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We see in verse 3, To being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the love is described as a Christological gift. And here, peace is highlighted as distinctly pneumatological, spirit-related. It's a spiritual provision by the Holy Spirit. This depicts the source of love, the source of peace. Find, found and rooted in and given its being in the order of the Trinity. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. 
this idea of love and peace. They seem to be these overarching virtues that inflect the others and apart from which the others cannot truly exist in Christian form. Right? If love be not the motivation, if peace be not be a bond of the Spirit, they really can't truly exist in Christian form. Contemplating the truths of chapters 1 through 3 will, by the Spirit who illuminated the truths to our hearts and minds, enliven us to humility of mind and gentleness of demeanor. The wealth is not ours, it is a divine gift. The strength is not ours, it is the inspiration of the divine life. The dignity is not ours, it is conferred on us by the free, unpurchased love of God because we are in Christ. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so when we speak about the body of Christ and we're talking about things like humility, gentleness, and patience, and, and then we see it, see it moving in love and peace, we must and we will pause to recognize that we have this being in the Godhead. It comes from Him, and it will go to Him. The other thing we can pause to reflect on here as we close is understand that this is all working out under the context of ordinary. Walk in a manner worthy. Remember that the Ephesians are being urged to an ordinary expression so it would fit that these virtues would have ordinary realities where gospel teaching produces a greater concern for miracles than for holiness, a greater desire for wealth than for conformity to Christ, a greater desire, a greater appetite for celebrity than for service, the gospel of Christ has been completely lost. Let's remember that these are going to be ordinary circumstances that we'll have opportunity to live according to this unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to, to show tolerance in the love of Christ. In closing, hear Paul's letter to the Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks that you have given us unity of spirit, unity in the spirit. You have also given us the desire, the will, 
the oughtness you've given us, your law you've given us, the strength that we may maintain this unity. Work in us, Lord, to strive and be diligent towards those ends in love and in peace and to your glory and to the thanksgiving of our hearts to you. To you all glory, honor, and praise. We ask these things in Christ's name.